Welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. This is episode three of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we are sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three queens of drama, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Werten and British-Australian actor and writer Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Tamara von Werten and Lily McLeish. This episode, we will be listening to the play Blackbird Hour by Babilier Bukilwa. Blackbird Hour is an explosive and intimate fly-on-the-wall four-dimensional experience about a young black woman who has reached her wit's end. After the play, we will be talking to writer Babilier Bukilwa, followed by a chat with special guest Maya Jeffers. Blackbird Hour by Babilier Bukilwa. was that? I know you hate speaking to her, so. Put stillness on that to-do list. Drink. shooting in the gym. Do you want to charge your phone? Why are you here, Mike? He's worried about you. Wait, what happened, Leash? Life, innit? Well, you've checked on me now. 
Thanks. What are you doing? Watching you, right? This is what you're gonna do. What are we doing? I don't enjoy talking to her. It's not fun. I don't like it. You didn't have to pick up the call, Mike. You don't... Just leave. What's the point of you right now? Nothing. Just there. Yeah? Hey, what she's turned you into. Turned? Ish, you're not okay. She hasn't... Mans is here. Been here. You said she came in and saw you. Yeah. She left. Mm-hmm. She left you? Yes. What are you here for, Michael? You? You weren't here until she... So no, Mike. She said she's worried about you. She said a lot. And you started drinking again? I stopped. <laughs> Heavily. Mm-hmm. Ish. Is it? She said that you're not taking care of yourself. You're not eating and that. What else did she say? You're here. Tell me. What did you and your good friend Emma have to chat about at this hour? Tell me. We didn't even talk for long. You've got a lot to say. He called me. Don't even have a number saved. We don't talk. You know this. Do I? It's news to me that you and my ex-fucking girlfriend seem to be having issues gone crazy chats late at night, B. News to fucking me. Nobody's calling you crazy. You're not. You sounded really worried. But you hate her. But I hate her too. What are you doing? This is my flat, Mike. You came here. I know the breakup is fresh. Fresh? I, I know you're going through a lot at the moment. Moment. Look, I know, I feel, I feel that you're not okay. Well done, Michael. You always were observant. Ish. You knew I loved her before I did. You didn't come to talk about her. And yet. But I, I came for you. I'm actually very much okay, so you for coming, I'll roll you a spliff for your travels. Ish. I'm here, B. I'm here. Nothing. I love you. Why do people keep saying that? Who is people? Means nothing. You're not listening to me. Love. I'm fucking here. Why are you shouting? Not shouting. The door. What has she done to you? Why are you putting this on her? I'm only asking if... Don't put this on her. Okay, I didn't. My brain is my brain. This is me, not... Look at you. No. No. Why aren't you listening to me? Well, I, I love you. I'm very lovable, yes. Ish. Lovable. Hmm? Love, able. Yeah, yes. 
It's all just... Reg. You're lying to me. Just standing there, lying. What? You're disgusted by me, my room, the sight, this, the fucking, it's shit. I'm not, you're not disgusted. I've got eyes, Michael. They do still work very well. Babe, the Hoover and that, you know. Say it. It's painful that you're not. Look at me, Mike. Take a good. Here. Nasty in it. Say it. You're not. Fuck you. Leave. I'm staying. I'm not leaving. I am asking you to leave. I stink, Mike. I smell so bad. I I haven't showered in, don't even, can't remember, over two weeks, three. I fucking stink. I stink, Mike. Ain't brushed my teeth. I try to. My bottom teeth. They started bleeding, and the color red. Painful. It's painful to brush them. I'm gross, Michael. I'm sorry that you're feeling this way. Mm -hmm. I want to help. Why won't you let me? This kills me. I, I love you. This love word. Do people just use it when they feel sorry? When, when their need for what you can give is suffocating. Suffocation. You know it's a question. I love you is a question. I care about you. I don't want it. Everyone's profoundly deep. Every fucking one. And then they're not. Language is all we. Words. I'm Irish. I don't want it. Your love. It's draining and consuming. It infiltrates. Saturates. I'm tired. They, they never taught us how to love us. They? I said I don't want it. I have nothing left. No reserves. No backups. Your love, hers, it's meaningless. Means nothing. I don't want it. I can't. This is painful. I'm numb. I'm fucking numb and feel everything too much. 
bear long. I don't want your love. It smothers you and strangles you. Love has you waking up in the middle of the night in a panic. Love has you feeling half a mound of shackles. It feasts, it steals your oxygen, invades your chest, your feet, the corners of your belly that you didn't even know existed without your consent, making you want forever, no matter the temperature. Love erupts your identity. It makes promises to you that it's loud, it's violent. I don't want it, Mike. Just the way you are, you're worthy of it. It's, it's hardish. You're describing a superficial, immature type of- Take my knickers. Take my knickers, Michael. Take them. You love me, right? All of me, yeah? The good and the beautiful bits, the endearing bits, the bits you used to find lovely and sweet and revolutionary and radical and beautiful and, and worthy. And then eventually you don't want any more because they're actually fucking real. Not quirky, interchangeable, glow-in-the-dark fridge magnets. Buzzwords. Real. Then, 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 then fuck. Then, then when you fuck, can't, can't rearrange them, then, then fuck. Suddenly, it's, it's, it's new information. Like, I asked to be fucking saved. Man did not ask to be saved, fam. But they're too much, yeah? Them bits. Too constant. So I'm an actual person, you know? Not this woman-shaped hollow. What about them dark ones? Them proper dark bits. Them proper dark bits that, them invasive, protruding dark bits that, 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 that whatever the fuck they give me, my eyelids are scolded fam. And so whenever, whenever I fucking blink, I'm at that place, that dark, this place, here, them man there, them dark bits there, yeah? You can fuck with them dark man there, yeah? Them man got stamina. Them man carry blades under their tongues. Relentless, my G. Hardcore knickers, my you. Love my honesty, Mike. My all of me, yeah? Every single inch. My smell, yeah? Yes, my fucked up ways, angry at the worldisms, my past, now, my now, the inner, my core, the fucking, the fucking, you love that, this, chips engraved on my shoulders, ancestors wrote poems about us, the fucking songs, <laughs> and pictures and lullabies. We kept them going. Fucking, fucking. It's long, man. Nah. Man's is tired. Be done from all my bugs. You can carry them, yeah? 
you got space. How big are your hands? Yes. Take manicures. Take them. The reading of the play is directed by Anna Gervin and performed by Babilier Bukiwa and Michael Balogun, with sound design by Julian Starr. Babilier Bukiwa is an actor, model, poet, sister, the collar of madness, podcaster and a songwriter. Most recently seen returning to the National Theatre stage opposite Kate Blanchett and directed by Katie Mitchell, her notable work includes The Royal Court, The Hampstead, The Nottingham Playhouse, The Arcola, Soho, The Leicester Curve, BBC, UK TV, Channel 4 and the ICA. Mobilier was shortlisted for the Brunford Prize for Playwriting Shortlist 2019 with her debut play, Blackbird Hour. Mobilier co-founded the award-nominated podcast Cistron a podcast and collective founded in 2015 to amplify the black, femme, queer British experience, modeling for Burberry, Adidas, Macy's, Dr. Martens and Blue Magazine. She was also noted by the Guardian newspaper as one of 10 female creatives 2019. Babillier has also been invited to join the BBC London Writers' Room, being longlisted for their Drama Room 2019, as well as the Royal Court Writers' Room 2019. She is currently an artist in residence at Theatre Peckham 2020 with her second play, Cake, an origin story to her debut play, Blackbird Hour. Hello, Babillier. So lovely to have you on the show. For our first question, we are called Fizzy Sherbet. And when we started out with our readings, we would give every audience member a lemon sherbet to eat while they were watching. So to kick off this interview, we'd like to ask you if there's any sweet that brings up a story for you. I would just like to say that I'm still waiting on that sherbet for when we meet in real life. Thank you very much. This does not let anybody off the hook. <laughs> Secondly, um, do you know what? I think um, round trees, fruit pastels, and I don't know why I have shame and embarrassment about it. I feel like it's because it's a really um, sugary sweet with lots of E numbers in it. But I remember <laughs> really thinking that I was like eating some type of rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so sad but yeah yeah round food street pastels um never like my mum or my carer would go to the shops and get me sweets I'd be like round trees fruit pastels and they have this lovely coating as well oh. haven't they they're sort of a bit rough exactly. and then it's smooth as a way yeah I, okay I, it's like a perfect treat it's I just you need in a sweet exactly <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I get the where you're coming from with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Great. So we've just been listening to your beautiful play Blackbird Hour or an extract of it. And uh, one of the questions that we'd love to ask you is what was the inspiration behind the play? How did it start? That is a really good question. Um, the inspiration behind the play was um, I actually uh, broke my knee in real life. I got hit by a motorbike and um, I ended up, um, yeah, I broke my knee um, 
had lots of like damage to other like bones and stuff in my body and I was out of work for a good seven eight months and I fell really hard into a depression and um I think that play was the beginning of me sort of um coming to terms with like the new part of my life and like letting go of other things and I think where I wasn't working I acting work I mean where I wasn't um acting I really sort of just had lots of time to think about what it is that's important to me because often with acting you it is a very like beautiful art form and I'm really like blessed to um have the career that I have but often there is like a, a feeling of like a lack of um I don't want to say the word control but just like a lack of voice I always feel like I have a lack, a lack of voice mm. um because it's um a vision of a writer and then a director and then you have like your little pizzazz in it so I think this was really me being like what is important to me what matters to me and at that time it was my brain if that makes any sense yeah it does oh. yeah I have to my- say I mean reading just reading the play I haven't listened to it myself when we're recording this interview um but it has had such a powerful effect on me um and thank you I was in intrigued because in your notes at the beginning of the play you say this is not a play about mental health yeah and for me when I read it it felt that this is a play about love would you agree oh yeah oh my goodness yeah um absolutely um I feel like all the best plays or the most like interesting plays really are about love in some some kind of way I would definitely say that this play for me was a call to arms to love myself And it was a call to arms to sort of accept who I am and where I'm at. It was a call to arms for my rage, um, which I didn't used to love. You know, I used to like hide my rage. Um, It was a call to arms for all of the things I think that I ignored and was now like actually plant these seeds because they're already here and they can grow and you can love them and water them. I really do feel that we will be, or I will be, no, we will be, a mess and a masterpiece you know simultaneously for the rest of our lives and so I think it when you say love I really do agree because it definitely felt like the beginning of like a self-love journey for myself Hmm. that's so beautifully put thank you thank you you. thanks I also find really striking in your writing how you use uh, symbolism and for instance in the water rising as well as how you use light and music and I was just wondering what are the important influences in your writing do you think is it fine art or film or yeah that's a really good question um I uh to be really sort of transparent just in the sense of I remember sorry this is I'm gonna go off topic and then I promise I'll bring it right back I actually can't remember if it was in that I think it was in that show that I did with you Lily at the National and I actually remember being in a rehearsal was it that show it would be so embarrassing if it wasn't that show please correct me if it's not but I remember we had a discussion about it was that show it was definitely Katie Mitchell um where we were just basically speaking about like how um women always say sorry for oversharing before they like speak yeah and so like I'm really just like since that I'm just like I refuse to say that because often like when men share it's never or overshare or whatever that means it's always like oh wow he's so strong or wow he's so and so I'm just like just commit to what it is that you have to say 
because what you have to say is important. Um, so yeah, to keep it transparent, I um, after the uh, accident, I was um, diagnosed with BPD and um, a form of autism. Uh, there was um, a level of like paranoid schizophrenia that I was experiencing, and what uh, plus psychosis. And what was happening was I was seeing the world with lots of colours, and um, I was just I basically realised I was very very sensitive to sound, but actually that I'd always been very sensitive to sound, and I'd always and that I had always um, been very sensitive to light, mm. and so. I don't know, it was almost just like an aha moment. I was like, oh, like when people speak, sometimes you see colours and the colours mean different moods. Or sometimes when you listen to a certain song, again, that gives you a certain colour or a certain mood. And I was just like, oh, how can I sort of make that internal experience external? Because everything's mm -hmm. very, um, it's very four-dimensional for me, the way I experience the world. It's very much sound and light and visuals. Um, plus feeling and I was really interested in creating like an accessible piece of work that you can feel as well as like see and hear and I would say that my influences are really strongly like musical theatre <laughs> song and yeah musical theatre and song yeah musical theatre song and theatre live art yeah absolutely the the, the experience of like having lots of things happen at the same time that even when you can smell it like that type of experience or like a 4d 5d six-dimensional experience does yeah. that make sense yeah no totally it really does and it is very successful in your writing i think what you're talking about the inside experience i think you it is very it transports over <laughs> to the lizard <laughs> to the viewer or the reader and then do, does your writing, do you think in the plays following, you know, there's a very conceptual idea, I think, with the water rising, just in terms of a visual thing. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that you think is often in your plays or? Um, I didn't actually think about that until you asked that question. So that's like really interesting for me to hear as a writer. because I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, that's working. But um, I, so the Blackbird Hour is actually um, a middle play of um, a trilogy of plays mm -hmm. and definitely for that trio of plays there is and um, I am like attempting to use like water as this as a medium as a character actually and with the other parts of the work that I'm doing so with the other plays that I'm writing at the moment I definitely do have like an affinity to like water and uh, which another um, director let me no, they're like, you have this thing about war. And I was like, yeah, really, do I? Yeah, I just think it's a, a very interesting element. Just the, one of the most purest elements. We're made of, what, 70, 75% of it. it. It signifies purity. It signifies death. Like, I don't know, I just find water really... Um, there's so much. I think when I, again, was going through my depression, I was reading lots of books about um, how to be like adaptable and flexible like water and how water comes in many forms it comes in the river it comes in the lake it comes in motion it comes in face rain as tears it comes in uh sweat it you know it, water is such a flexible adaptable element and i try to use it as an accessible picture for us as like humans to see ourselves in you mentioned before babilier that um you were talking about 
something with Lily in a rehearsal room, which then had an influence on your writing. Mm -hmm. um, is this, do you feel in general as well that your work as an actor influences the way you write? Oh my God, yeah, yes, absolutely. I feel like, and I don't want to say all the time because I've been in many a rehearsal room where it has not been safe and it's been really horrid, but for the, for the, the core of it, even when it has been like an experience that hasn't been great, what you see really is like human behavior, like at its like rawest because everybody's trying to get this common goal. And obviously with acting, you're, you're using your body and your energy and your voice to create something. And so it, it's, um, it's quite a, um, it's a very physical sport. And when I'm in the rehearsal room, like hearing people's different approaches to life, different experiences, um, you hear people's artwork, um, you hear people's poetry, you hear people's prose, and it's always really humbling and inspiring to be able to be around people so honest. I, I, I found that actors in the rehearsal room are like some of the most like honest people in this very vulnerable space. And I've learned some of my like greatest life lessons in a rehearsal room. I think acting influences my work because, well, for me, as an actor, where, again, it's like a common goal, um, as in the piece, the message of the piece, or the questions of the piece is like the common goal. And so there really isn't room for, like, ego in the sense of, you know, I want to do this thing or say this line this way to look good, because it, it, it just doesn't serve, serve it. And so when it comes to my work, I take it back to that question again, like, what is the piece? I, um, what is the piece about or what are the questions that I really want to ask I'm really um, I work quite collaboratively like I'm very interested in um, like workshopping like plays and I, I don't understand how people can just like sit in a room for like months and months and months with like no outside like um, influence at all and just sit in this like very colonial straight mm. back chair and just like write to a deadline I'm just that's I don't have that skill if it's a skill like I you know I, I opt out I opt the other I want to hear music and then write the play or I want to write the play and then watch a film and see how that film influences it and see if you know I read a, a poem in the morning and see if that influences like the scene that I've written I, I very much am for being influenced the same way that I'm influenced in the rehearsal room and I think also I've just read like lots and lots and lots and lots of really crap scripts so I'm just trying to not write a crap script <laughs> um and I've read some amazing scripts and I'm just trying to level up really yeah yeah well this is uh, Blackbird Hour is an extract from a full-length version that was shortlisted for the Brentwood Prize last year and also now for the Women's Prize for Playwriting and it is in fact your debut play do you have any future plans for it yet Blackbird Hour mm. um I don't have any plans for it yet. I haven't touched that play since last year. Mm. Um, and um, it is, again, like I said, the middle of a trilogy. So it doesn't even feel like it's finished because I feel like, I mean, it is, but it doesn't, I mean, there's an ending. It doesn't mean it's finished. There's an ending to that portion. But because it's in a trio of plays and it's the middle one, I'm very much like the entirety of that circle is not done. So... Mm. 
I have plans to finish that journey. I'm on the last part. I've finished the prequel. Mm -hmm. That's really been fun. That's what I've been doing this year. And I don't have any plans as of yet for that particular part. What would your wish be for the trilogy, for, for what to happen with the trilogy? What would like, oh my like Ooh, yeah, biggest desire for it? Oh my days, to like have a trilogy of plays, like just literally you can go see one on Wednesday and then one on Thursday, one on Friday, or you, there's like a month and you see the first part one, the next month you see part two, next month you see part three. Why not? Why not have a trilogy of plays? I feel like we do it often. And why not for this particular story? Yeah, that would be my dream. Brilliant. Yeah. Producing houses, get on it. Exactly. You hear this? Get on it. Get, get on, on it. it. Um, you have worked as an actor for many years and have starred in prestigious productions at the National Theatre, the Hampstead Theatre and the Royal Court. How is it different? How does it feel different? You now have a spotlight on your writing. Hmm. Yeah um how does it feel different uh, mm, yeah that's a good question it feels I feel a lot more uh exposed I suppose again like being in rehearsal rooms where especially if the writer's not in the room for example let's say we're doing a Shakespeare play or what and let's not use Shakespeare but let's say we're doing a playwright that's just not in the room we're constantly like why did this what is this playwright saying why do they say that I wonder what they were going through and it's just that I think it's being in that position where people are questioning character motives which I'm actually okay with I think it's just a very different position to be in from being an actor where you're just like a vessel and using someone else's words this time it's sort of my words that somebody else could be extracting or dissecting but I think I don't know more of that more of that for human behavior you know we the facade is like the lie isn't it and the facade is the the boring thing and the facade is what makes us unhappy I suppose so I'm really I'm really for the shedding of like skin and the shedding of cells like in a safe in a safe way for example like with a play so yeah right and you're not only a brilliant writer and actor you're also actually a poet a model and a songwriter and you run your own podcast <laughs> do yeah. you think your creative hats influence each other or do you keep the strands quite separate that's a really good question. I think they all influence each other. Mm. I think they all influence each other in the same way that my uh, sexuality and my gender and my race influences who I am as a person. It's kind of like that. Like I can't take out the songwriting part of me. Neither can I take out the... I can, but they all make up like one sort of force. And so for example, with podcasting, when it will come to an idea, uh, of what it is that me and um, Sistrin would want to talk about. Sistrin's on another podcast. My my writer hat is like, okay, there needs to be a beginning, middle and the end to this, to this podcast. It needs to have like structure there. My acting part is like, am I clear? Like, am I, am I concise? Like, don't drink dairy before you go on air. The, the sort of singer-songwriter part of me is like, okay, what music is going to be the bed? What, what songs are going to inform like the mood of this episode? And so it's just kind of like that. It's sort of like, and then actually we also have snippets of poetry every once in a while just to add a, a, a sort of expression of art. And so I do think they all influence each other in a way which I feel makes me a, 
open to a fuller life and like just sort of a well-rounded piece of art I think mm. I'm always trying to I'm always thinking about how to make art accessible yeah and so I think they all influence each other it's really interesting it's it's Thank also you. a little bit um like a toolbox so you have all these tools yeah. that you that you know work in different areas and you can bring them all to this work exactly I like that toolbox mm. yes let's use that Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that idea of, you know, you packing your toolbox and going off to work. Um, <laughs> well, it's full of art skills. It's, you know, it's a really good... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a shame. I can, I have a look at the time here um, and we're already coming to the end of our interview. We would love to talk to you for oh. a lot longer. Well, this was and nice. who knows, maybe we, we can again at some Did other you? time. Um, yeah. But for a last question to you, to round everything up, we just wanted to ask you if there's any interesting women in the arts or otherwise, alive or otherwise, who you are particularly inspired by at the moment. Oh, yeah, this is a really good question. Um, yeah, so many. I'm, I'm inspired by my younger self. Um, she really inspires me because she had such big dreams and yeah I am reintroducing myself back to her and she's like my best friend and my biggest critic so my younger Barbillier is somebody that really inspires me artist called Dilemma um, they are a spoken word artist a, a singer a jazz artist they're a performance artist and a painter they're incredible my best friends inspire me. I think um, the people that inspire my writing are Bell Hooks, Audrey Lord really inspires me. Uh, Angela Davis really inspires me. Debbie Tucker Green is the reason why I started writing. Winston Pinnock really inspires me. Miranda Cromwell inspires me. I could go on. Yeah, the list is like, I've got a massive plethora of like um, amazing women that inspire me. I'm really lucky. Yeah, that's a fab list you just given Thank us. You. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you and to Thank be able to talk to you. And uh, super great to have Blackbird Hour on our pilot podcast season. Oh my god, I'm so excited! I'm so excited. Thank you for um, thank you for this. It's like great. That's wonderful. That's so nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, and it's been really, really lovely to meet you. Director Anna Gervin tells us why she chose to direct Blackbird Hour. When I first read Blackbird Hour, I was taken aback by how honest and fearless Bibilio's writing is, yet the play still felt so full of fears and many other rich paradoxes. The play felt like it was about so many different issues without ever hammering you over the head with any of them. So, for example, I wouldn't really call it, in inverted commas, a mental health play. However, it does certainly explore in depth an individual's experience of mental health issues. Um, and that being a black female, a black queer female in particular, really fascinated me. Um, as it's just not a story I've ever heard before or been told or had the privilege of working on. And it feels to me like if we don't hear these stories then how are we to learn about them so it was 
primarily the subject matter that drew me in, but Babillier's writing is in one moment Pinter-esque in subtext and in the next painfully poetic, like a Sarah Kane play. And I could really visualise this space um, inside the character's head and outside. And so that really excited me and it made me feel like it's something I would like to see myself. And really the heartbeat of it is of a poet, particularly in the closing moments of the section we've broadcast. I think there's a really revolutionary writer in there and I can't wait to hear more of her voice. Our special guest today is Maya Jeffers, a Barbadian British documentary and portrait photographer, dramaturg and director living and working in London. She is currently the literary associate at the Royal Court and the 2019 Portrait of Britain winner. Her work in both theatre and photography is focused on the multiplicity of black existence. She aims to use portraiture and storytelling to illuminate black and queer joy as acts of resistance. Tamara was off dolphin spotting in Scotland when we recorded this interview, so our lovely host Josephine took over. So first off, just as a kind of warmer upper, we are called Fizzy Sherbet, and when we started out with our readings, we would give every audience member a lemon sherbet to eat whilst they were listening to the plays. And so uh, we were just thought we'd ask all of our interviewees whether they have a suite with a story behind it. Yeah, there's, there's one that just keeps coming to mind, and it's a really dramatic story, which I think is, it ties into this, but... Um... Luckily, he's alive and he's okay. But my brother, when we were kids, got knocked over. And I remember me and my mum seeing it. And, you know, nothing, nothing was broken. All was good. But as a, as a um, little treat, my mum got us both uh, some sweets to just sort of smooth over the trauma of seeing my brother get knocked over. But I just remember feeling so sad that he had a bigger pack of Harry Bows than me. And I just, <laughs> I threw a tantrum. And I was like, hey. <laughs> I threw a tantrum, uh, so really, oh, really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that kind of, I don't know, the, once the moment of, of drama and sadness is over, like you're just back to that normal kind of sibling rivalry and competition and the unfairness of it all. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so Maya, you work as a dramaturg at the Royal Court, but you also work separately as a director and a photographer and you wear loads of different creative hats. Do you feel that these are all quite separate and distinct or how much crossover is there and influence between them? Yeah, I sort of, I guess I tend to see them as extensions of each other. And the thing that sits at the intersection of all those practices is obviously story, you know, photography, portraiture, there's so much storytelling in it, especially in the gaze of, of the people that I, I photograph. And I guess I try to approach each of my practices with a sense of curiosity and interrogation at the heart of it. And the main aim of, of all of that is to illuminate some aspect of truth you know, storytelling isn't, uh, you know, it could be fictional, but there's, there needs to be some aspect of truth to it. And I guess all of the work that I do attempts to illuminate that, you know, the feeling that I get when I, when I photograph someone versus me providing detailed notes on the script is that it's an opportunity for me to sort of uncover 
uh, truth and vulnerability. And I guess the main thing is to utilize all of those tools, all of those practices as a way of directly combating uh, racism and classism and sexism and, you know, all the isms that have mm. oppressed us. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we'll come on much, uh, much more directly to your um, work with, with writers and in dramaturgy, but just off the back of that, I'm really curious, um, specifically with your photography work, do you, like, I'm, I'm really intrigued by when you say, like, uh, that thing of, it's about getting to truth. Do you, do you find that you get to that more narratively, kind of as in setting up the photographs, or do you try to get things more naturally, where there isn't so much setup involved? Like, how do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, I really, naturalism um, and... Uh, so I, I tried to build a, a communication and a relationship and a dialogue with the people that I photograph. So often we will literally just hang out for an hour and I won't even whip my camera out. And it's just an opportunity to chat and giggle and get to know each other. And then slowly the camera starts to come out, but it's less of a, I don't want it to be a, a, an imposing object that then has an impact on, on our already mm. dynamic. Um, so I try to just capture moments that feel as, as truthful and as honest as as possible and there may be moments where I might stop them and go okay that that pose really works let's just quickly capture that again but for the mm -hmm. most part it's as natural as as possible mm. yeah that's fascinating and that is so much of directing as well isn't it like that, that that's an obvious overlap yeah, yeah. So yeah, so my question, Maya, particularly was, so I'm a, I'm a writer and an actor and I grew up and kind of trained in two countries, um, being Britain and Australia. And one thing that I found, and I think is probably true for people definitely within the British education system, is um, the role of a dramaturg is quite opaque. Um, it's not something I ever learned about at school um, or even, and I went to drama school as well. So I kind of, you know, it's not like I wasn't seeking out education around this thing. And um, so I'm just really curious as to, well, maybe you could describe what is a dramaturg? Like what is the role? And maybe also some roots into that profession. Who knows? What is making? <laughs> um, yeah, the sort of, the lack of transparency of what dramaturgy is, still gives me like crazy imposter syndrome. Also something to note is that you can ask loads of different dramaturgs what dramaturgy is and I'm, I can imagine they will all give you completely different answers. Absolutely. Yeah, but for me dramaturgy is, is the act of interrogation, of generous interrogation and um, really just asking the right questions of, of the play and of the writers and providing useful provocations and opening up avenues of possibility for the writer to explore during the development of their script. And yeah, I guess also a big part of the job is it's a, it's a people's job. Like, you know, there's a, there's a massive part that ties into the finding, the nurturing and the championing of, of writers and just giving them that little push and going, you're, you're amazing. Keep, keep going. Mm. Uh, Cause I think that's a, it's a big it's a big thing that writers need and and it's beautiful to be that person to to support them it's a i guess it provides like a sort of sense of mm. trust between between the two of you so then you can support them in in the best way possible but um aside from the practical aspects of dramaturgy i guess within my own practice i try to use it as a tool to sort of critique structures of dominance that are so 
present in the landscape of, of theatre. And, you know, when I think a lot about resisting these, these structures of, of oppression, it ties back into the idea of Western dramaturgy. And, you know, for me, Western dramaturgy is all about desire and conquering and this, like, mm. it's really goal-oriented. Mm. But I, I try to subvert that, I guess. And, yeah, just go away from the sort of the, the patriarchal ideas of, of what of what a story is or what it should potentially be in quotation marks. Mm. Um, yeah, I try to smash that as much as possible. But mm. I guess the roots of getting into dramaturgy, I'd say three things. The main thing is if you want to be a dramaturg, contact theatres and try and be a reader for them. And a reader is essentially a freelance job where you read unsolicited scripts and you write a script report and detail your thoughts of the script to the literary department. I'd also say do a writer's course, like do some sort of writer's group because it gives you an understanding of the sort of building blocks of structure mm -hmm. and voice and world building and character. And that knowledge is really useful to then, if you want to do away with it, you can, but I think it's useful to have it. And also at the court, we run a, uh, a programme called Script Panel. So it's a dramaturgy programme, uh, it's a training programme where we, it's an opportunity for people who have absolutely zero experience in dramaturgy to come and learn about what the hell it is. And, you know, it may mean that you see a lot, lots of plays and you chat about it as a group, or you learn how to write a script report. Sometimes we get designers and directors and writers in to talk about their process in regards to dramaturgy. So, yeah, I, th there's a there's a bunch of things. And also the main thing is to just read plays. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. I find the, you know, the conversation around dramaturgy really interesting because I'm a British German director and I grew up in Germany and work often and a lot in uh, German theatres. And in German theatres, the Stadttheater in particular, the dramaturgs are so integral to the buildings and they have there's a lot of dramaturgs in the buildings and they run, they work from the programming of the season to uh, the casting for actors and they are on, each of the dramaturgs have productions that they are part of, but then they also do, I mean, tons of work within the theatre building itself. And I just, because I know that the record has this, also this fantastic literary department. And I was just wondering sort of what that department does in obviously the court as a building, but also if you, you know, how the dramaturgs, function in the buildings in the British theatre. Yeah. Yeah, it's intriguing because I think, you know, German dramaturgy is something that I'm so fascinated by. And I really, I really want to go to Germany to just get a deeper understanding of of what it means to be a dramaturg over there. But I guess within the within a British context, well within the context of of how we work at the court, I'd say that the majority of us, if not all of the artistic team, would class themselves as as dramaturgs. And you know, because we're the writer's theatre, dramaturgy is totally at the heart of literally everything we do, whether that's programming or curating writers groups or setting up town halls with writers to discuss their thoughts. It, yeah, it's, it's in everything. And I think what's really important is um, just, I guess, making sure that it goes beyond the development of scripts and just bleeding into the curation of, of everything that we do specifically the strategic thinking it's not just a sort of creative practice I think it's dramaturgy offers up a space for 
collaboration and thought and a sharing of ideas. That's, that's what dramaturgy is. So everything that we do ties back into to a dramaturgical practice. I'm really interested in how theatre can be a space for a physical space for change and also a physical space that can provide like a, like a, a sense of safety because typically theatres are sort of seen as these crazy institutions that you can't quite penetrate. Um, but there's something about utilising the form of dramaturgy to open up a space where people can, can exist freely, whether that's by seeing a play or just literally being in a rehearsal room and, and discussing or, you know, opening up the space for, for the community. I think there's, we need to find alternative ways of, yeah, cre creating a space that feels welcome and wholesome outside of the traditional mm -hmm. uh, structures of, of what theatre is if that makes any sense. Mm, no, it really does. Yeah, I'm just curious, off the back of that, I'm just really curious. Do you think that that means potentially like a, a restructuring of the rehearsal process or like, I don't know, in terms of making it more open? Mm. Yeah, I think, well, I think ultimately it's a restructuring of everything that the that mm. industry <laughs> Like it, it totally needs an overhaul. So it's not just the rehearsal process. I think it's just... It's the, it's the thinking and I think we need to really push against the nepotistic culture or, you know, theatre has a, has a crazy like class problem, for instance. And I think once we start to really address those issues and provide space for storytelling at the heart of it, that's when we're going to really start to see change. Hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk now about your work with the BA on Blackbird Hour. How did that work relationship start and, um, and what was that process like working together? Ah, I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and it was so lovely to know that this is happening because, yeah, I, I'm a massive fan and I think they're amazing. So I first met the Billier back, I think it might have been 2017 or 2016 when I was working at Tallawa Theatre Company as so at first I was their literary trainee under Jane Fallowfield, who was the literary associate there. And I remember her just telling me, Jane was like, you need to meet this person called Babilier. You're going to love them. And turns out that Jane was saying the same thing to Babilier. <laughs> so um, yeah, when we finally met, it was just, it was wonderful. And that summer they were showcasing a really early draft, the first iteration of Blackbird Hour for the annual new writing festival that Talawa does called Talawa Firsts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember just sitting in the audience of that really tiny rehearsal room. It was just a sort of, it was essentially like a staged reading of it. And I, I was just fascinated and transfixed. And I just remember the, the feeling, the feeling that I got of, of seeing and hearing Babillier's words for the first time. And it really stuck with me. It just felt so like that's an example of a piece that really embodies truth. You know, there's so much truth and heart and it's so potently beautiful mm. um, and it stuck with me. So two years later, I was then the new work coordinator at Talawa and Jane had just left to join the Royal Court. And so I kind of was holding the fort of the literary department for a while. And we had given Babillier a seed commission to develop this piece a bit further and for it to be performed again at that year's Talawa Firsts. So that was the moment where we started to properly work together and in a sort of dramaturgical capacity. And I remember just having, yeah, really wonderful chats dramaturgically about 
the piece and particularly uh, Isha's character. And this was all prior to, so then we got Miranda Cromwell in as a director to, di to direct the reading of, of that iteration of it. But yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful process. Mm. It is. I mean, it's just a stunning play. Like it is just, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I mean, I've not seen it, but like just on the page, it is so beautiful and so intimate. And yeah, it's incredible. One of the things that Mavilia was saying to us mm. when we were in conversation with them was that it is actually part of a trilogy. I mm. don't know if you're part of the process of that development. Are you part of that process of the trilogy? Yes. That's the plan. I know that they're developing, is it Cake with Theatre Peckham? Um, yeah. so the plan is at some point for me to come in and do some, maybe one or two days of, of dramaturgy with, with that piece. But yeah, it's, so just that alone of it being a trilogy of, of experience just feels so gorgeous and, and so needed, especially mm. within, the, within the current sort of climate of, of storytelling and theatre. I think it's going to be beautiful when it's yeah in its entirety I think it's worth saying as well like we're just talking about the kind of process of it now like one thing that I kind of didn't grasp certainly when I was a younger actor and younger writer is just how long things can take sometimes <laughs> like like you know the process of a play like from the idea to the even the first staging before it maybe gets restaged or whatever like is it can be so long like how do you how do you handle that with with writers that you're working with I mean I guess lots of them are used to it but what's that like the kind of duration yeah I guess it, it all depends on the writer as well you know because for earlier early career writers or le legit like fresh newbies I don't think they, they quite grasp the understanding that it might take a while so a big part of that is just managing expectations but also constantly ploughing them with love and mm. uh, being, <laughs> being their cheerleader but there's something about for me it's all about process it's never about like a piece is never I mean some writers might disagree but I a piece mm. is never finished it's just you might stage it at that moment but it could be a completely different piece of work if you were to to rework it in a, in a few years and there's something quite joyful about yeah just about process and allowing a piece to mature over time or to just sit and absorb the current sort of I don't know like political or social climate and mm -hmm. yeah what, what does that do to the to the quality and the texture of of the work so yeah it's managing expectations but allowing a piece to just to breathe so Maya how do you go about picking your projects and how many projects might you have going on at one time yeah that's a great <laughs> <laughs> I for a long time uh, I was just saying yes to everything and burning myself out but I think I've, I've stopped doing that now and which is a pri it's a privilege in itself to even have things to, to say yes or no to which I'm I'm constantly grateful for but I guess a big I've told myself now to only say yes to things that I genuinely like hand on heart care about and want to be a part of um, and that that like level of selectivity is that word mm -hmm. has <laughs> enabled me to um yeah to just really like put put my all into a piece because I truly believe in it and also just making sure that each project aligns with with my own politics but yeah how many projects I work on it, it varies uh, dependent on what's happening at the time I I'm currently on four days a week now at the court mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know 
court stuff, there's constantly loads of projects sort of ticking over that I've got to manage. But then outside of that, yeah, finding the time to do freelance directing or photography stuff. You know, at the moment I've got three freelance jobs as well as court stuff. So it's like, it's quite, it's quite a lot, but it's also really exciting to know that there's so many projects that I think are really cool that I'm able to, to work on. So I guess it's just about, I'm just trying to be more intentional with, with the types of work that I do and when I do them. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, the projects take up so much of your of one's time, and but also uh, love and energy. And it makes total sense that because you give a lot to a project, that that is exactly what it is. Exactly. But I was just actually thinking, when you work as a director, do you get dramaturg a dramaturg in, or do you then do directing and dramaturg sort of side to side? The directing as a practice is is the baby of of the trio, so I'm still very much a, a baby director. But at the moment, you know, the, I've done one official production, and I was dramaturg and director on it. And I think, you know, moving forward, should I get any more directing gigs? I'd love to just be a, a dramaturg and director on it, and potentially get someone in to to bounce ideas off of. But you know, the whole point of me developing my dramaturgical practice is to is to have that as a tool when I direct yeah I mean it's obviously I mean it, it yeah they're all going to feed in aren't they like it's all it's you're, you feel so primed to be a director to me just listening to you but like yeah like yeah so um so yeah so so this podcast Maya and Fizzy Sherbet in general is intended as a platform for women writers and directors with an international outlook and one of the things that we're trying to consciously balance is having conversations that highlight the strengths and also the challenges that women in theatre face in different countries and also um where women are working in a different cultural context to their own um, do you have any feelings on this massive question that you'd love to share? It's such a massive question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, you know, my experience in theatre is solely from the perspective of, of British theatre. But what I think is quite evident over here as a as a woman, as a as a black queer woman that works in theatre is just how just the, the sheer uh, the whiteness, the ingrained mm -hmm patriarchy the class issue that really lays at the foundation of of some of the institutions most of the institutions and the industry as a whole and I think you know the more the more I work in the industry I'm, the more I know that it's built to benefit a certain type of person and subsequently to erase and deny the voices of anyone that's sort of outside of that specific type of person and whether they're artists or designers or administrators anyone that literally works in the industry and of course it shouldn't it shouldn't be this way and that's why I think there's something about my existence in this industry that feels like an act of resistance in itself and there's there's something really important about creating communities of that resistance communities where you feel like you can literally just be yourself within within these institutions that can sometimes deny you of that but yeah I think like culturally when you think of story and storytelling and performance you know even prior to these big Greek ancient stories there was the ancient oral you know storytelling tradition that originated on, on the continent of Africa so when you think of storytelling it's one of the most primal things that we can we can do as humans so it just feels so bizarre sometimes for mm -hmm. even that to to be mm -hmm. the barriers to to being able to just express 
and just this yeah. idea of yeah like just being able to express whether that's expressing our pain or our or our healing or our joy it's incredible to to be able to do that but yeah that that obviously doesn't go without its difficulties as as a woman as as a woman in this in this industry yeah i think, yeah. I think it's, it's it's tough <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess like certainly, uh, even as you say, like it's primal and it's not to say that people wouldn't be telling stories anyway, but if it's about a professional level, <laughs> like it's like who's getting paid to also tell these stories. But yeah. Yeah. Mm. And also, you know, that, mm. um, there's so many other experiences that are completely different to mine. W women mm. identify as, as deaf or disabled or trans women or people who are non-binary, like those experiences are constantly being pushed to the margins and, and have been mm -hmm. so it's important for I just I, I really think that now's the time I know everyone's saying it but now really feels like the time to properly shake things up and to and to make more space mm -hmm. or to yeah. just take over the space <laughs> the space is gone we can't get at the space oh, like <laughs> yeah <laughs> It, there is something wildly weird about what's happening right now, actually, within the pandemic and the fact that somehow, because the spaces are just gone and closed, especially, I think, for freelancers, obviously, I can only speak from a free freelance position right now, but it feels like everything's, because everything is closed, there are no rules that, or there are no sort of doors to knock on at the moment. So it's just a bit like, oh, the playing field's kind of changed and... What can we do with this new playing field? Yeah, and but there's there's totally pros and cons to that. Like the pros is that yeah, it really opens up avenues for possibility. Also, the the heart, the stark and harsh reality is that, you know, dependent on on your uh, your status in the world, you you could you might have to leave theatre as a result yeah. because there's literally no way of you surviving anymore, and that's a, that's a bit of a travesty because. I really hope we're not getting back into the buildings, you know, mm -hmm. in winter and in the new year and just seeing, we will, we will be seeing a dramatic difference of yeah. who's actually taking up that space and, and who is allowed to, to stay and have the privilege to stay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a huge question mark right now, but yeah. Just to, to wrap up, um, I thank you so much for, for everything. It's been incredible. So we're asking everyone about what women in the arts or otherwise, alive or otherwise, are inspiring them at the moment. This is the best question of all time. <laughs> um, so, ah, so, so many people. I'd say, obviously, my idol, Debbie Tucker-Green. She's mm. just like living genius, always will be. But I'm also like, as you can imagine, a photography geek. So I'd, I would say Zanelli Moholy. And I know you won't be able to see this, people that are listening, but this is Zanelli Moholy for you guys. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're a South African um, photographer whose work sort of explores the existence of queer South African people. And majority of their work is self-portraits. Selena Thompson, incredible, incredible artist who makes important and incredible work. Jazz Lee Jones, incredible writer, beautiful, beautiful person. Ah, loads of people. <laughs> amazing. No, this is amazing. I mean, what's great about this question, because we're asking everyone, is we're just getting this wonderful list of people to check out and to celebrate. So it's, yeah, thank you so, so much, Maya, for today. It's been incredible. Oh, it's wonderful talking to you. <laughs> Thanks sure. a lot. Anytime. And yeah, I'm definitely going to have a Sherbet in your, uh, in your name, in your honour.
Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Shabbat podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Billy McLeish, with intro music by Jane Dixon. Next week, we'll be listening to the play Special Occasions by the fantastic Amy Eng and talking to Amy and her special guest, Dr. Jacqueline Granick. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.